Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Friday the 31st of May 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we begin our examination of Chapter 5, Communist Strategy and the Party Form. We are joined again this week by Sophie of Trans Trans Revolution and Lexi of Somside Chats and also by Dan, friend of the show. This week I have the new patron Don E. Stevens to thank. The first Patreon-only podcast will be coming in the next week or two, so if that floats your boat, or maybe you'd just like to show the podcast some love, you can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, which works out at $1 an episode. When we hit 100 patrons, the Patreon-only podcast will become a fortnightly endeavour. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel and make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Today we've got a hyper full panel, so well, who do we have first? We have Sophie. Sophie, how's it going? Hi Sophie, kill your landlord, 999 dead Nazis. Thanks for that. On the East Coast, somewhere upstate New York, I think. I'm snitching for the feds. Yeah, sorry about that, but you've got Dan here. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> uh, this is Dan, not actually snitching for the feds. Uh, I've been on an episode before, <laughs> long time Swamp Side and From Alpha to Omega listener. I yeah. actually meant I was snitching on you on the, for the feds. Has never. Hello, I'm, I'm Lexi, a hovering sphere above the earth. So what we're going to do today, campers, is chapter five, communist strategy and the party form. This is one of my favorite chapters of this book because Mike McNair is forced to talk about something that he doesn't want to talk about, which is Leninism, qua Leninism as a thing. You know, McNair, generally speaking, wants to disaggregate different types of Leninism and not, you know, be like, look, these things are really super different. But in this one specific way, Leninism is a coherent body of thought. And it's a question about splits. The question about the split in the second international towards the third international and digging into different bits of what part of the split is justified, what part of the rationale for the split is illusory. Um, what can we learn from these splits? What's a productive split versus a ridiculous, unproductive cartoon Marxist split? People's movement of Judea. That's a good split. Well, I mean, that was a justified split, obviously. I really like this chapter because this dynamic is present pretty much everywhere on the left from like Maoist and Trotskyist groups, even like anarchists and social democrats. The like need to split is something somehow embedded very deep in left wing thought. Yeah, so it's obviously not something that was just generated by Leninists, but it's something that the Leninist tradition has some serious good ammo for because. As McNair is going to go on to argue that th- there was a necessary split, that had, something had to be done there. So being able to marshal this literature towards splitting is, uh, I don't know. It continues a trend I see in Leninism where, like, because of the sort of, I don't know, fluidity and argumentation, you know, by that point, dialectics kind of means what you want it to mean. You can openly argue or kind of mystically argue for things that people already want to do. <laughs> I think this is one of those one of those things. There's already a tendency towards like 
trying to make something your property in a in a weird way if you're a if you're a manager or an intellectual or some type that's really interesting because i've been talking with my roommate and somebody in my friends group said something to the effect of like you know one of the problems with the left right now is that they treat their orgs as like a business and they want to be the ceo and if they're not the ceo they're going to get pissed to put that into more marxy terms everybody wants to be the next lenin and if they don't get that chance they're going to purge you to make sure they get that chance you know what i mean and I think it's also that people don't want to, don't feel comfortable in a minority tendency in an organization. There's a real desire to have your viewpoint be the one that predominates. And if it's not the case, then it's well just be in your own little org. It's mainly, mainly down to the amount of leftists that do yoga. I think flexibility should be discouraged. You know, <laughs> people should be worried about pulling the hamstring instead of all these splits. Tom, only colonizers do yoga. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, fashy colonizers. I hear you. I brought up chapter five here. So we're going to talk a lot about today about the splits that happened earlier in Communist Party history, both in, I think, 1871 with Marx and then also after that, 1903 by the Russians and 1920 by the time there was a big split or 1917. So basically... We're going to look at, at these splits. McNair's going to talk about these splits and see, were they justified? Was there a good reason for them? But also talk about what effect these splits have had on the movement and how they have maybe been misinterpreted and misused and how it's kind of ingrained, this notion of splitting has been ingrained into the communist left, which has been to its detriment. So... We have this uh, paragraph here where there's this Eurocommunist. Lexi, do you want to give this paragraph a go? Yeah, let's give it a go. The Eurocommunist, Fernando Codlin, in his From Common Turn to Common Form, argued that the split in the Second International was, quote, a model of sectarian and bureaucratic method, to which the modern splintered working class movement can be traced back. Claudin's argument has been widely adopted many liberal and social democratic critics of communism and some leftists would place the source further back at the 1903 split between Bolsheviks and Mensheviks. They rely on Luxembourg and Trotsky's contemporary critiques of Lenin. The anarchists would take it a stage further. The 1871 split in the first international, they would say, showed Marx's sectarianism and authoritarian methods at work. The seductive quality of this argument of these arguments consists in two facts. First, 1871, 1903, and the split consummated in 1921 have commonly been used as arguments by bureaucratic and sectarian splitters. Second, in all three cases, the arguments are fundamentally false, but contain a partial truth. Generally speaking, there are like, I don't know, at least in 1871, there's an important split that we've like kind of gone over. But McNair is going to go on to argue that more or less, that was justified, too. <laughs> yeah, it seems like, I don't know, there's always that, what is it, Bismarck who made the quote, like, should the red and black ever be united again, the world will tremble in fear or something like that. When I hear that quote, I'm like, oh, man, maybe they shouldn't have done it. But then I hear about how awful Bakunin was. And what was the primary reason for that split? Oh, I can read this, and it's actually super interesting to me. It says in... 1871, a split which was really about political strategy was confusingly presented as a split about Bakunin's secret dictatorial conspiracy. But Bakunin's secret dictatorial conspiracy was real. 
Bakunin's hypocrisy and his very confused ideas obscure the fact that he and his fellows identified a real problem about the forms of authority in the workers' movement. So I've actually never heard about this secret dictatorial conspiracy. When I read this, I just have this vision of like my anarchist friends getting all mad at me because of this, and I agree with it or whatever. But not even knowing much about it, I just think of like what happened in like the French Revolution and other revolutions where people who seemingly had you know liberatory ideals like you get robespierre who's anti-death penalty and then he's the the head of the the great terror you know what i mean like again and it's not hard for me to believe that somebody who would be an anarchist would have this kind of secret dictatorial conspiracy also knowing anarchists unfortunately there's some letters by bakunin about invisible dictatorship and the way you kind of you know a small minority of people can manipulate a crowd which is true no, I mean, it's it's true and, you know, effective and stuff, but it creates a, I don't know, a difficult conversation about authority and liberty and what it means to be an anarchist and or libertarian when power structures that are supposed to be more broadly representative of people or, or something end up with these, like, <laughs> these, you know, very authoritarian coups or whatever. And the question becomes what value is there in being a libertarian or anarchist if that is the case in human politics? So Bakunin was also complaining about uh, like the real kind of undemocratic nature of the structures in the workers' union at the, uh, work movement at the time, like a classic anarchist critique. I think what McNair is referring to is Bakunin's secret dictatorial conspiracy of him trying to hijack the international for anarchist purposes. Well, I think what yeah. Tom's referring to is this, this last sentence here where it says, Bakunin's hypocrisy and his very confused ideas obscure the fact that he and his followers identified a real problem about oh. the forms of authority in the workers' movement. I think that's what Tom's focusing on. Yeah, and I, I think just based on what he gets into later, he's talking about the division between the interests of like the rank-and-file members and full-timers. And Bakunin's hypocrisy is, to the best of my knowledge, he sort of operated an international within an international made up of the anarchist members. But to, to zero in more like on the uh, identified real problem about the, about the forms of authority and workers' movement, that was like always the thing that like had that anarchism had purchased with me earlier on in my life was that like not just like this very specific instance, but you think about like the USSR and China and all these different examples of actually existing socialism and the anarchists have like a very easy answer to it. And it wasn't until I started organizing with them and I saw these pieces of hypocrisy that I started to question that. But I think what it, it's just a, it's a shame that this is the history of anarchism and it's kind of off topic, but to me it sucks that it gives tankies ammo to dismiss anarchists. When, when the truth is that Bakunin's problem with the dictatorship of the proletariat essentially is that this is destined to become the justification for a class dictatorship over the proletariat. There is a really interesting conspectus on state and anarchy that Marx wrote as a sort of dialogue with bits of state and anarchy where even if you're a Marxist, you're, you, you have to be ideologically blocked to not read Bakunin's bits on what might become of the dictatorship of the proletariat and not be like, this. that was predictive. This guy is 
not totally dumb. This is um, a serious critique that was not answered by history in, in Marx's favor, although the way Marx responds is essentially a paean of faith in the people that would be implementing his program. I mean, it doesn't read like that. He's like, no, you idiot. You've misunderstood my concepts. But Bakunin is right about how this would end up translating into mass politics, where Marx was like, look, I'm not advocating this shit. You know, you're conflating me with a bunch of these right-wing socialists. I'm making a radical critique of these of this right-wing socialism. You don't understand what I'm getting at. Neither did a lot of people implementing historical socialism. Well, Chomsky is a fan of Bakunin to this day. He always brings up his prediction. This is why Bakunin has purchase. He calls it the greatest, the best prediction in the social sciences of all time. Yeah, That's but something. Chomsky is a big dumb butt, baby. <laughs> okay, okay, point, point, counterpoint. So his mother delivered him anally. Is this what you're saying? Yes. Okay. okay. Glad we got that, that cleared up. Thank you, Dr. Chomsky, for all of your work. I'm Mrs. Chomsky. Okay. Now, <laughs> um, let's let's get on to the 1903 split. Who wants to talk about this? Because this is not a split that I am really up to speed with. Actually, this is something wow. that I've, I've also read in what is uh, in uh, Lars Lee's book and some, you know, Leninist kind of documents of the time and concluded that I don't really know how to conceptualize this bit because depending on who you read, there was a split into two separate parties or, you know, you're really essentially dealing with factions of the same party. Again, we're talking about the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party and the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks being different factions. They wanted to take the party in, in two different directions. You know, even though that they're being like driven underground by the czar, they want like the Mensheviks, you know, were, were still interested in, in doing something more like the SPD to the best of their ability, the Socialist Party in Germany. But, well, yeah. I guess the Socialist Party in Germany was also being driven underground, but, but by that point, it had not, you know, it had, it had emerged into legality, if I recall correctly. Whereas the Bolsheviks were less interested in having like a party of what they wanted something of, of a bit more of an active party membership and a more restrictive membership so that people were actually actively engaged with party work. But that's, you know, I have a very hazy picture of it and it's kind of hard to get people to actually <laughs> have a coherent narrative about what that split was about. Derek, hello there. You are just in time to talk about the 1903 split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. Oh, um, joy. <laughs> I've got a question for you, Derek, first, before you get jump into 1903. What, what's, what's that thing on your head? That is a mic. What's that? Seriously, yeah. what? Derek, Derek, see Derek Byron of 5,000 Podcast History is actually wearing some, like, recording apparatus. Derek, explain this shit. <laughs> um, people complained about my voice moving since I don't stay still when we record. So I actually, um, a listener bought me a headset for fuck's sake. <laughs> so a listener bought you a fucking headset, you cheap ass <laughs> so, motherfucker. I, 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 gonna... spent about, I spent about a hundred dollars on cords to make this headset work, though. So like, yeah, hell yeah. Seriously, that looks like a two ninety, like a two dollar ninety nine headset and all. It's like something from like 
1980. <laughs> it's like a Walkman headset. What the I, fuck? Oh my god. I mean, it's pro it's probably a high quality headset. I mean, it was yeah. Probably, I was about to say it's it is a it's it's actually a really expensive headset. So. It, it, it was made it was made for you know spoiled children who can play Fortnite. You know what I mean? But Derek is using it for communism, so that's a better yeah. use of this high high quality microphone. Is yeah, it? <laughs> then Fortnite, I'm, probably. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it's definitely used for Fortnite. So, so unity and diversity, guys, my peeps. No, uh, chapter before that, Derek. Derek, give us your take on the 1903 split in the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. The two things I always thought it was 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 one, how, how far should they participate in in elections if they had them? But that's actually not even totally an issue yet. That was hypothetical. And two, that the Mensheviks were too top down in their organizing model and were, strictly speaking, actually more the way people think of Marxist Leninists now, ironically. I've heard that before, too. Like, basically... One of the responses to Rosa Luxemburg's critique of Lenin at this time during the time of the split was that she was just being fed bullshit from the Mensheviks. And as this chapter gets into later on, the Bolsheviks uh, before 1920-21 were actually like very conscientious about having a degree of autonomy in their local party branches, which is funny. It's one of those cases in which Rosa ended up being more predictive than accurate when she was actually writing, which is always also an interesting dynamic. It's mm -hmm. kind of like she grokked the tone of Lenin, but but actually didn't get the the substantive disagreement between. It's it, but I, I I've always also kind of frankly not trusted any source on this. So um... I have a hard time with this one too because yeah. the the way that I've I was you know introduced to it in a history classes. This is where the Bolsheviks basically started developing something like a you know totalitarian model of party, which is, I think, an obvious over-representation of what, what is to be done means. But I don't know how far of an over-representation it is. Or, or, uh, well, I mean, we could, this could open up a, a can of worms we probably don't want to get into, but I, I mean... Yeah. To be to be fair, how you read Kowski's interpretation of of the road to power is going to really inform how authoritarian you think even the SPD could have been under under the Kowski model. It's really really hard to deal with. I, I actually tend to think that you don't really see totalitarian tendencies. What you know, if you really want to call it that until probably 1915, and not full blown until 1919. But that's 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 kind of me. But the basic idea of the split, like part of it is party membership. What does party membership mean, right? Right. The way that they wanted to get around that top-down stuff from the Mensheviks is to have a more Republican party model. And I, I swear, Tom, this is relevant. Just to expand on that a little bit, I believe Hal Draper's contention is that the Mensheviks wanted lower bars to party membership and as a result wanted more intellectuals to be affiliated with the party. Right. That's another issue. That, but, you, you know, I have, I've always had a, a question about this because Lenin's relationship to the intellectia is complicated. He hated them, but was also, frankly, one of them, as in that was his that was the formal social class of his family. And that that in Russia was a specific social class. It was not just like I studied stuff. It was a it was a class of bureaucrats largely supported by either the czarist government or by the church. And so the context of them entering the Mensheviks is 
is complicated by the fact that the intellectual was not was not even like working professors the way they are now. It, it was it's something very specific. It was a bureaucratic caste in Russia. You were kind of born into it. It's a it's a position that professors kind of are in, but but professors aren't quasi wage earners in modern capitalism, whereas in Russia this was a patronage position. Like you got to go back to like medieval courtiers to get something similar like it in Western Europe. And that right. it's it's not exactly the same. Some translators just leave the Russian word so as to not make it make the comparison. So overall, in in this bit. What he's kind of setting up here, he's going to talk about the second international one as well, is that these are the three major kind of historical splits. Mm-hmm. And he's going to try and make a case that at least two of them, two out of the three, are wholly justified. He says it would have been it would have been split if Rosa Luxemburg was right, but Rosa wasn't right yet. So it's the legitimacy of the split seems questionable. Does anyone even know if these things really became like two different organizations? A lot of the literature on the party suggests that that is not like a completed split. I thought they formed the same party and they were just like warring factions within the party. That That's hard. I mean, if there weren't factions within the party, then they're not a split. You can have warring factions within the same party and it still be perfectly intact. That's my kind of point that it was like a split, but it, not in reality. They still managed to hold RSDLP together, but it was like maybe not that functional. I need to go back and read my party congress notes, frankly. Tom, that's my feeling as well, but I might be missing some important historical context. Let's let's get on to the second international split. He, so this is like the one that we're kind of probably most interested in. It's the one I'm most um, familiar with. He gives a, he says a strange thing here where he says, so this is the split in the second international. So this is after World War One. And the SPD has kind of fallen apart because a lot of the left left because of how they supported war credits. And the Second International, the international group of all these different communist organizations split between the right that supported the war and, and even and some of the center who kind of let it happen. And the left who said, God damn it, this was terrible. That the split was justified, but the reasoning given for it at the time was at least partly unsound. Now, what is this reason that he's going to talk about here that was unsound? Let's have a look. This is what Lenin said. Let me read this bit. Lenin's original argument for a split with the social chauvinist leaders. So that's a terrible phrase. When he says social chauvinist leaders, he's talking about the right of the class. Am I correct? Yeah, he's talking about nationalists within the socialist movement. I mean, later on, we'll call them social fascists, which is also equally confusing. But Okay, so let me start again. Lenin's original argument for a split with the social chauvinist leaders was quite simply that they had betrayed the decisions of the international and the interests of the working class and were scabs, McNair's favorite word. The explanation he gave was that this collapse has been mainly caused by the actual prevalence in it of petty bourgeois opportunism, bourgeois nature and the danger of which have long been indicated by the finest representatives of the revolutionary proletariat of all countries. Further. The so-called center of the German and other social democratic parties has in actual fact faint-heartedly capitulated to the opportunists. It must be the task of the future international resolutely and irrevocably to rid itself of the bourgeois trend in socialism. 
So what's the problem with that? I don't see where he's saying they said something wrong. It all seems reasonably... Well, for one, Lenin doesn't actually prove his, his point. This has been something that I, I sort of get maddeningly from reading the assertions for this district about petty bourgeois nature of things, is they never actually prove the class character of those involved. They just assert it. And frankly, the leadership of of a lot of the left was also equally petty bourgeois or from D class A elements within the class and was not led by working class either. That's true almost to a man for the leaders of the Bolsheviks. Yeah. So um, he's, gonna, he's gonna get into these critiques later. This is just a little statement of the argument. But that but that that's sort of what he's getting at, Tom. That's sort of what he's hinting at is like it, it may not have been totally true. It sounds good, and if it was true, it would have been valid, but it's not totally and completely true in the first place. Two, he's being vague about what the opportunism is specifically about. Like, why do you think that is? I mean, as a side note, why do you think Lenin was vague about what the specific opportunism was? You can always throw opportunism out. Like, it's almost always true. It's like the vagueness is between 1914 opportunism and his enemies in 1917. That's the, that's the conflation is that like somebody, you know, like a Martov, right? You can smear them for being like not in favor of October. I mean, I guess they wasn't, you know what I mean? Like at first. And, and then by virtue of that, throw him in with the people that were for war in 1914, even though that's not true about him. So like I the think, left come arguments that like Kowski killed his wife because of 1914. Yeah. Right? Like that kind of ridiculousness. I mean, I don't even, that's just internet shit, honestly. It's not even a... Uh, I've, heard, I've heard it asserted in actual Ofcom prolemics, but I mean, like, that, that's neither here nor there. The, 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 point, the point I'm making is just, like, you're being vague about the specific offense so that you can take other offenses that may not even yes. totally rhyme and throw it together. Okay, well, let, let's read this little paragraph here when he gets onto it. He's talking about before the war how the right of the Social Democratic Party was thought of as deviationist. The war has shown that this cannot be so in future. Opportunism has matured, is now playing to the full its role as a misery of the bourgeois in the working class movement. Unity with the opportunists has become sheer hypocrisy, an example of which we see in the German SPD. On all important occasions, the opportunists come forward with an ultimatum which they carry out with the aid of their numerous connections within the bourgeoisie, of their majority on the executive of the trade unions, etc. Unity with opportunists actually means today subordinating the working class to its national bourgeoisie, alliance with it for the purpose of oppressing other nations and of fighting for great power privileges. It means splitting the revolutionary proletariat in all countries. Now, McNair is going to come down on this side. He thinks that this split is necessary. Like he thought the split with Bakunin and Marx was necessary, that this is a necessary political split. This whole argument is, he's going to object to bits of it, but that's a part he keeps. Although it's, it is an irony of history, right, what this argument ends up being used for, which is basically to always support micro-nationalist movements. <laughs> Explain that. Well, this this document, as well as the imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, is used to justify anti-imperial movements, which we pretty much all do think are justified. But to do so under the grounds that the proletariat in the first world is somehow always privileged, which is not something that Lenin's actually arguing. 
and it ends up where you literally have this theory of the comprador class bourgeoisie where Maoist and other Marxist-Leninists will literally say that it is more progressive to side with the bourgeoisie in your own country as long as it breaks up imperialism than it is to to side with uh, opportunist elements in other countries, even if they're actually proletarian. And that was the justification for the popular front. This idea for like, you know, back your own bourgeoisie ahead of, say, going for international cooperation with workers everywhere. It's kind of based on this idea that Western workers are basically all exploiting third world, second world workers. Which This is the justification for third worldism, even though it's not really in the text when you read it. And like, honestly, I think if you were to go in and study the statistics, it's not like the first worlders, workers, proletariat aren't being exploited. They are. So even if the level of their exploitation is less than, say, a third world person, that's kind of irrelevant. They're both being exploited. They both have things in common for changing the system. Yeah, it's just it's just interesting to me how that this justification ends up doing the doing kind of the very thing that it's arguing against the way it's been used. We can get too off on a on a thing here because I think Lenin in the main is actually right. Once you had the nationalist groups won and the center set on its hands, the left would have to break with it. But it's also fascinating because this also generates the tension between Lenin and then the left communists later on. And so there are repercussions for the way this was argued that I don't think everyone really saw at the time. And honestly, this is this is a huge dividing point between like Soviet defensist and Soviet. I say I, I consider myself a Soviet agnostic. So like it's how this plays out and what it's used to justify later, even if it was absolutely necessary. Okay, Dan. You want to read this argument here, the final argument, top of page 88. This argument seeks a strategic split in two senses. On the one hand, the strategy of the regenerated movement is to be revolutionary and not reformist. On the other, it is a strategic break from the second international strategy of unity, discussed in chapter one. It is, indeed, the opposite, exact opposite. By splitting from the right, the left, which represents the working class, is to purge the workers' parties of opportunists to purify itself and regenerate socialism as revolutionary. Splitting becomes in itself a strategy to purify the movement. So, like, if there's one argument in all of this chapter, it's nearly this idea that the split became a strategy and it, it, it didn't become just like a once-off thing that needed to be done. It merged into this weird kind of idea of splitting and purifying which you know kind of makes no sense like let's think you do split in the party and and then 10 years later you have a whole new lump of members and maybe some of them have got different ideas and stuff you're you're going to constantly need to split if you're thinking it's going to be about purifying like it seems to me that it can only be about a broad strategical point that we are this is our core party line this is who we are and and if it's not beyond if it becomes the split becomes about small micro decisions and disagreements over policies the whole movement is dead so you have the entire history of trotskyism where you split over every single minor whether or not it's critical versus military support for some tempot dictator in peru or something i mean like that's the history of of communism after the 1950s it, it, is, it is not knowing what is a strategic versus what is a purification split.
Right. And I, and I think like the take home is it's kind of similar to like Lenin's ideas on defensism in the previous chapter, where there, there was some justification for what Lenin wrote at the time, but then people go and take it and run off with it. And they don't realize that this, whether we're talking about splits or def- defeatism or whatever, like there's specific historical circumstances that gave these positions some credence. And it seems like, especially among people who call themselves Leninists, they just kind of take it, run with it, and make it into this like abstract, almost idealist thing that has to be done periodically. Or worse, they take it and try to try to cobble up some kind of methodology from it and say the methodology can never, ever be wrong, no matter what. I mean, Lukács does this, and you see many people talk about orthodox Marxism, and you ask him what positions of Marx is, are orthodox, because they rarely actually mean, like, Marx, and uh, you won't be able to pin them down on it. And so, like, I, I don't know that I actually agree with Magnair that this justification ends up being all that good historically, because if you you can trace so much bad back to not the split itself, which I, I grin, I think it was it was necessary. Like you can't, you can't have a bunch of nationalists in an international movement. It won't work, but in how you argued for it, that really does matter. Well, he doesn't really go for this whole argument as the heading false indicates. I also not sure that I agree with McNair here either. Right. What he ends up coming down on. Yeah. Well, let's tease this out then. Okay. So he's kind of talked about how this idea of the third worldism thing doesn't work. Let's read here what Bukharin has to say. Lexi, do you want to take this paragraph? Bukharin, in Imperialism and World Economy, has a better understanding, that is, that the relative advantages of a nation-state in the world hierarchy will allow the state to gain the loyalty of at least a large section of its working class. But this understanding can be extended to the case of colonies and semi-colonies. Left nationalism, which is the main equivalent in the colonial world of, quote, social chauvinism, seeks to improve the position of the poor, including the working class, by improving the relative standing of its nation-state in the world hierarchy. And there can be relative advantages in this hierarchy, not only, for example, between Britain and Argentina, but also between Britain and France, or between Brazil and Argentina. Once this point is grasped, it is clear that the strategy of a split will not purify the workers' movement, and that the idea that the workers' movement can be purified from reformism, social chauvinism, by the separation of the revolutionaries internationalists is illusory. Working class support for one's own capitalist nation state is produced by dynamics inherent to the capitalist nation state system and world market. And there is no grouping within the working class, which is presumptively free of it. So that kind of sounds like he's saying, oh yeah, the split is pointless, (laughs) which is weird. Well, he's saying that this isn't true for a labor aristocracy thesis reason. That's specifically the wrong way to argue for this. Right. That he's saying that it is actually in the interest of any national bourgeoisie, I mean, any national working class anywhere to support its own nation's relative advantage against another nation. Like, that. that's always true, whether it's reformist or not. And I, I think you see this in the Maoist stuff. Can somebody break down the idea of labor aristocracy, please? Generally, I think this is the idea that in the West... The worker in the West is essentially doing well off the exploitation of the workers in the undeveloped countries, less developed countries. So I'm going to give you two breakdowns of it. Classically, it doesn't mean that. Classically, it means like management. 
frankly, are right, that's angles, but we're really talking about Mao's version. But of but Mao, but Lin Bao's version of this. Yeah, Lin Bao's version of this is because of imperialist super profits, the proletariat and developed nations are actually paid above above the exploitation line. I don't really know how. It requires a worldwide conspiracy theory to work because it basically says that somehow that the bourgeois the bourgeois capitalist nation state is paying. They're underpaying for raw materials, and thus they're, they're underpaying able to for, their workers. for raw, yeah, thus able to uh, overpay their workers through the super profits without exploiting them in any way. Thus, the proletariat of the first world are just are are effectively world bourgeoisie, even against the local bourgeoisie. I think that when you look at the stats, I think I was talking to Kleiman about this, and he's saying like that's just plain wrong. You can look at the numbers, and you can see. That just doesn't work. Maybe the rates of exploitation are different in the West. I don't even think they are. I think it seems to be like most countries, it's a 50% or 100% rate of exploitation. But that's what he's talking about here, this general idea that the, the workers in the West essentially aren't exploited and it's every, everything's yeah. on the back of the third world, second world. Yeah, and another thing about labor aristocracy theory is later on it it actually abandons labor theory of value to justify itself because it realizes if you use labor theory of value, it won't work. Also, their labor aristocrats don't agree on this. So, for example, there's a book by this guy. I think his name is Momus. Uh, it, he doesn't publish under his real name. And he, he, he figures out labor aristocracy from using price point parity and um, doing adjustments that way. And even he points out that it, that it doesn't work by nations. It might work by sectors. So certain sectors do seem to get paid more than they probably should, given the labor that they produce. But it doesn't make any sense to talk about it in terms of nation states. So that's even from someone who accepts the thesis. And then if you read, uh, Kleiman was probably referring to Charlie Post's articles where he went through the productivity scales and just said, if you adjust for productivity, they'd all end up in, in net equaling, up, equaling out. Uh, yes, first, that's first, precisely first, it. More productive. So like... Value productive, yeah. But yeah, but in, in terms of value production, not what, like in terms right. of like, labor, like physical labor. But no, but... Right, in, in the Marxian sense, yeah. Can we then tease exactly what his argument here? He is saying that there will always be reformists in every nation, for example, and that splitting won't get rid of that. He said that their argument for the split was was incorrect. Is that what he's saying? Well, it seems like he's saying something even a bit more than that, like regardless of reformism versus revolutionary, as Derek mentioned earlier, no matter what, it's always in the interest of the working class of one nation state for that nation state to do better in the world hierarchy because because then their lives are a little bit better. But how does that factor into like the value, the kind of stats we're talking about in critique of like labor aristocracy and, and all that stuff? It, these are two separate points. I mean, basically labor aristocracy, the, the third world is theory that's most factually false, but also logically, even if it was true, it wouldn't make that much sense. According like Bakaran wouldn't have had these stats. These just weren't good productivity stats in 1917 in the capitalist world. So that, that if you want to take the separate argument is, is there's really no way out like trying to purify yourself of social reformism like sometimes trotskyists will try to do this or Maoists will try to do it. it it's a waste of time you 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 can't do it and also frankly if you look at a lot of what the, the policies that these groups Maoists trotskyists or whatever actually push they're effectively the same thing and and also, like, the next line points this out. The Bolsheviks themselves ended up proving this in 1917. How can he be in favor of the split if he thinks all these, if this split of reformists is worthless? There's only I one way to find out, Tom. There's we only one way to find meeting. out. 
Uh, Derek, why don't you read this in a way in which we don't have to be a computer compiler to, to keep up with the, <laughs> the pace? All right. The Bolsheviks, in fact, themselves demonstrated in 1917 the falsity of the policy of purifying the movement through spritz. Firstly, when Lenin returned to Russia, the All-Russia Central Committee, included Kamenev and Stalin, was engaged in discussing with the Mensheviks' unity on the basis of critical support for the provisional government. Secondly, in October, two central Bolshevik leaders, Zinoviev and Kamenev, broke ranks to denounce the planned insurrection in the bourgeois press. The Bolsheviks' separation from the Mensheviks had proved no guarantee against reformism. As a side note, I guess this means that they did actually have a hard split in 1913, and they got back together in 1917. Kind of. Yeah, that's a hard kind of. Okay. (laughs) Well, I think the way they came back together was just some members of the Bolshevik leadership sided with Mensheviks in the question of that planned insurrection. So it wasn't right. like a full coming back together. It was, a, I think it was a strategic united front as opposed to a popular front, which means, no, they didn't rejoin, but they were willing to work together in this limited aim. Huh. But the oh, thing is... Well, that's interesting. That kind of, you know, also proves, or, you know, that gets to the substance of his point that they, they purged, you know, the, a bunch of revolutionaries or at least people that would have went with October that maybe... But they, they went with it. They, you know, supported the the Red Army over the White right. Army. Like, a bunch of those people actually, like, they did split with the Bolsheviks during that split. Yeah, and I mean, that no, point. Trotsky was still a Menshevik, I believe. And this is when he becomes a Bolshevik is when this, when this like, temporary unity happens. People forget this, but, like, Trotsky was, was a Menshevik until pretty late. In fact, that's one of the things Stalinists like to pull out. And they love whipping out those uh, Lenin barbs at Trotsky from the old period, you know? Uh, that sounded but, vaguely sexual, whipping out what? the Lenin barbs. Okay. It is, it is vaguely sexual, Tom. Stalinist <laughs> Very vague. psychosexual <laughs> disease, all right? They have the thing. They have the thing that authoritarians have. Them and the Tory parties, they're all wearing gimp masks. Being Are we going full? Dungeons. Yeah. We're going full Adorno. We're going full we Adorno. Are. That's right. <laughs> Let's do it. Turn off that fucking jazz. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is also a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats.